The ushers are coming forward with Bibles and with a piece of paper and pencils for anyone that may want to take, take notes. If you don't want to take notes, you don't have to, of course, but I would like it for you to take a Bible so that you can follow along there when we, when we read from the Word. I also have, I was supposed to bring it up with me, but it looks like I did not bring it up. Um, I don't think it really applies so much to this service, but uh, if you want to, if you have young children and you want to bring them into the service with you, I encourage you to do so, uh, to have them experience, you know, what this part of worship is like. Uh, that's why we have two services that you can worship as a family together in one and then go to Sunday school during the other service. And so there's a special note sheet that we have for that now that'll hopefully help young people be able to, to kind of learn how to listen. Listening, in, listening is an art that is kind of lost on us nowadays. It's very hard for people to listen. Attention spans are shorter than they've ever been. And so hopefully this note sheet that we have for children will help uh, children learn how to listen to a sermon, what to expect, and things like that. So, um, so please, uh, you know, if you never need that or you want to invite your children to come in here with you during the sermon, we'd love to have them in here. It doesn't matter if they're making noise and running around and stuff. I've got four little kids myself, so we're used to that. Um, one other thing I want to do before we start today as well, too, I, I know that uh, there's a lot of people in our church, in our congregation, that have been sick this past week. So many. We were really uh, down first service as well, second service too. A lot of our, our folks have been sick with this flu, this respiratory thing. Sometimes it's just been like fever and aches. Other people have had actually the stomach flu. And then even like the whole Neves family, uh, Matt mentioned kind of in his prayer a little bit earlier that Nick's cousin, a man named James, who's 37 years old, he's a minister at a church in Arkansas. He passed away right before Christmas. He had a heart attack and it was very unexpected. And so he was, Nick had a migraine and a stomach flu and he was having to fly out and he was worried if he wasn't going to be able to do it because he wasn't well enough. He got well enough. He made it out there. But his whole family, Missy, all six of the kids were all sick with, with a fever and, and, a flu, and a stomach flu this week as well too. Like I said, many others. And then also Dolores Hamaker, who um, she has been in the hospital now for about three or three or four days. She's at Kaiser. The doctors still don't know what's going on with her. Uh, she's, she needs to drink some liquids so they could run some tests on her. She was trying to do that yesterday, but she couldn't keep it down. So they're going to try again today. I, I did hear this morning as well, too, that if, um, if they would like just some privacy today. Well, that's one of the things that I've been, I was encouraged to see in light of that. I went to go visit Doris on Friday, and when I got there, I think there was, I kid you not, like 10 people from our church in her room. It was like a party. I felt like I was a bad person for showing up because there were so many people in her room. And then as I was leaving, I saw like four more people come out the elevator, and then at the bottom, of, or no, two people came in while I was still there, four more at the elevator, and then at the bottom of the elevator at Kaiser, there was three more people from our church. So I was really impressed and encouraged by our church family and how they care for um, those that are, in, that are sick and in the hospital. But please, uh, not today. <laughs> she, she needs to rest. She needs to, uh, to get a little bit better so they can do some tests and try to figure out what's going on. But in light of everybody that's been sick uh, in our church, I'd like to just take a moment and, and let's pray together uh, for our church family and ask the Lord to, to help them to get better. Our Father in heaven, you are the great physician. Uh, there is nothing that is too hard for you, God. There's nothing that you don't know. And that gives us great joy and encouragement, Lord, especially when we, when we think of our sister Dolores, who's in the hospital and the doctors don't know what's causing this internal bleeding, Lord. We 
think of all of our many uh, friends and family, our brothers and sisters in the faith who have just been unable to, to do the things that they would normally do this past week due to the, this really bad cold that's been going around, Lord. And we pray for comfort and relief for all of those that have been ill. We pray that you would make them better soon, Lord, especially uh, with you know, the work week coming back up as well too, Lord, and that you would help them to, to find rest in you. I pray that you would especially be near to the Neves family, Lord, as they um, are trying to, to cope with the loss of of James. Be with James's wife, Rebecca. Please comfort her and their, their daughter, Mercy. Lord, we pray that you would help them to know how to grieve and mourn in this time. And also that the Neves, as they're in Southern California, they'd be able to have a good vacation still. Lord, that this sickness and this loss of, of James wouldn't uh, ruin the, the time that they're supposed to have down there. We rejoice, though, and we don't mourn like the world because we know that James knew you. And so we know that he is he is with you now in a way that we hope to be one day in your time as well. And so we thank you for your mercy towards us. We trust you, and we ask that your will would be done in all things. And we pray these in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> okay, guys. Uh, so we're going to be in Galatians chapter 5 this morning. So please do open up your Bible to there. While you're finding it, I wanted to set up this passage that we have for us today because the Apostle Paul in the passage that we have to look at today is going to be saying some very serious things. And he's going to be saying them in a very serious manner. And you can tell that just from, from reading it even, that there's this righteous anger that is building up in him. And, it, and it's going to come out in the words that he says. Yeah. You, could, you can even see it, especially in this especially uh, shocking statement in verse 12, which I think will be in next week. But he didn't just drop these truths on the saints in Galatia out of nowhere. He's been building up to them. So let me explain. We might look at it this way. Chapters 1 and 2 in the letter to Galatians establish his authority and his right to speak to them on these matters. He defends his apostleship in, these, in those opening chapters. And so his point is that he has the authority and the call from God to be saying the things that he's going to be saying to them, and, and to us as well. And that's very important that this is the case. You know, this isn't just some religious teacher. This isn't just some spiritual man. This is an apostle of the Lord. He's chosen for this specific work. And the teachers that are in Galatia who are teaching something contrary to him, guess what they are not? They are not apostles. They don't have any apostolic authority. And therefore, you know, the, their message needs to be considered in light of that. These Judaizers, these members of the circumcision party, they're not even prophets, let alone not apostles. Or you might remember what Ephesians chapter 2 says. In, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul's describing the doctrine of the church, how we're the body of Christ, how the Jews and Gentiles come together as one people. And in verse 19 and 20, he says, So then, he's speaking primarily to the Gentiles there, he says, So then you are no longer aliens and strangers, but you are fellow citizens with the saints members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so we see the church is even it's built on this foundation that the apostles and prophets have laid out. And so this is an apostle writing to the saints in Galatia here. 
And even more than that, uh, the content of what a person teaches is what is most important, not, not let alone his office. Remember what Paul said in the beginning of Galatians chapter 1. He said that even if another apostle or an angel of light comes to, comes to you and preaches a different gospel, let that person be accursed. So it's a very serious matter. And the fact that he is an apostle and that he's teaching what is true and right matters. Then in chapters 3 and 4, he addresses that problem that these teachers are bringing. The gospel is being tampered with, and he builds a theological foundation for the true gospel. In chapters 3 and 4, there's only one gospel. We can't confuse it with the law. This is a serious matter. And now from the middle of chapter 4 to 6, he's going to, bring, he's going to change directions a bit, and he's going to explain how we are to live in this true gospel. The implications that it has on our lives because this yoke of slavery has been broken. How Christ uh, perseveres us through it. How it is that the gospel directs the moral choices we make. And there is a danger, church, a danger of people being confused about these things and then being lost unto hell. Sometimes they might not even know it until they are before the Lord for judgment. And there when, when Christ will pronounce to them, Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. I never knew you. So it's a very serious matter. These are very serious things that the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Galatia and to us. Now, two weeks ago, Pastor Nick spoke about these two covenants, one of law, one of grace, one old, one new. Two ways of pursuing justification before God. And he ended on chapter 5, verse 1. We're going to start there this morning because it's a transitionary phrase. It connects the two passages together, this verse 1. So if you missed the sermon from two weeks ago, or if you just forget what it was that was talked about then, I would recommend that you go back and listen to it. It's, it's very helpful in trying to understand what we're going to be looking at again today. So the reading of God's Word, if you're opened up to the book of Galatians, beginning at verse 1 uh, through verse 6, we read, For freedom... Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. So, we see right away these two principles that he's putting forth to us. There is freedom, freedom and there is slavery. So, in Christian, I hope you realize that you are truly free. That is undergirding everything that he's saying here. No matter where we find ourselves, if it is in a, an office job, working a nine-to-five, uh, we might be on a, a vacation somewhere, somewhere warm and beautiful. That's why I, I like to vacation in that type of setting. We might, we might find ourselves in jail for preaching the gospel. The Apostle Paul certainly found himself in jail for doing that. Our brothers and sisters in China right now are finding themselves in jail for preaching the gospel right now. We might find ourselves in, in jail for something we did do that was wrong, that we deserve to be there for even. Um, that doesn't matter. 
uh, we might be with our backs against the wall with an assignment or project due very soon. No matter what the situation is, no matter where we find ourselves physically, if we are in Christ, in other words, if we are saved, we have freedom. It's not a freedom dependent upon other circumstances, outward circumstances. You could be held captive in chains, but possess the freedom that Paul is talking about here. You can be, you could think that you're free. You can be like Pharaoh in Egypt at the time before Israel's exodus, uh, with the power to do anything that you wanted. And in fact, you would be a slave if you're not in Christ. So what is in view here is a spiritual liberty. It's something that outward circumstances cannot impose upon. It is a freedom to love God, to enjoy God, and to serve God. The yoke of bondage or slavery that was preventing us from doing those things has been broken. That is what he's telling these Galatians and us. Our sins and our, our failure to keep the law perfectly were a yoke of slavery that kept us from loving God, from serving God, and from enjoying God. But Christ rendered perfect obedience to the law on behalf of those who would look to Him in faith. But Christ suffered the curse of the law on, behalf, on, on the cross, is where He took that punishment, on behalf of those who would look to Him in faith. So it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Christians are, are free to love and to enjoy God. We, we're the only people with such a freedom. Not everyone is able to do that. That's what Paul is getting after here. It is our birthright in Christ to be able to, to worship God, to love Him, to serve Him. It is our right as sons and daughters of God. I, I'm reminded of the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. Catechism is just simply a, a question and answers I guess, way of teaching. Uh, there's many good ones. There's many bad ones. I think the Heidelberg Catechism is, is a pretty good one. I would suggest it to you. You can find it for free online, and I think it would be helpful to you. Simply, again, it's just a series of questions and answers designed to help us think rightly about many different Christian doctrines. And it goes even, this specific one goes over the Apostles' Creed. It goes over the Ten Commandments. It's, it's pretty long. And even if you don't like everything in it, I personally I don't believe, I don't agree with it on every single point. But there is much that is helpful there. And the first question, I think, is perfect. Uh, it poses this question that I think addresses what it means to have this freedom in Christ. And so the, it poses the question like this. It says, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer that it gives is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. I, I love that. That's my comfort, absolutely. That is the comfort of every Christian, that this Savior has done those things and He keeps those things for us. It's so rich and so wonderful, and He perfectly, perfectly captures that kind of freedom that the Apostle Paul is addressing here in the letter to the Galatians. But, at the same time, note that this freedom is not without a warning. He tells them, He tells us even, 
Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So if he's going to take the time to posit this warning, what's the implication then? Well, I think it's simple. It's that a professing believer then may not stand firm, and they might actually submit again to a yoke of slavery. It's a warning that should be taken seriously. Further, it's a command to those that are in Christ, to those that are truly in Christ. It's an imperative, and it's given in the um, indicative mood. In other words, it's, it's because you have been set free by Christ, stand firm. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. It's like a general would say to a private. Okay? It's that sort of a direct command. It's expected of the person that's receiving it that this is to happen. It's not an option. Don't submit again. He says again. So in other words, it's something that you were one time under. You were one time under a yoke of slavery. And so don't go back to that. At that time, you were not free to love God, enjoy God, and serve God because of the sin of Adam and your own sin. But Christ has made you free. So stand firm. Stand in Christ. Take hold of the grace that only He can give for you. It is even it is God's will for you to do so. And now, with the rest of the text for this morning, he's going to elaborate on these principles of freedom and slavery in a specific context. And there are many ways that he could go about this. The scripture themselves deals with this same exact concept in a number of different ways. He was talking about it at the end of chapter 4 in the context of two covenants, a covenant of law and a covenant of grace. Now he's going to do it in the context of the Judaizers and their false teaching in Galatia. And so he's going to address it in light of circumcision. This old covenant law that God's people had to follow, the males obviously, to be circumcised. And so he starts out verse 2 very abruptly. You can almost tell that if he, if he wasn't writing this, if he was just speaking it, he could be shouting. It's look, and then like a hard pause. He's, he's making sure that he has our attention. Other versions translate this word as behold, listen, take note. The NIV goes as far to say, says, mark my words. You know, he's making sure that we know that what he's about to say next is a very, very, very serious matter. He needs all of our attention at this point because the things that he's going to say literally mean the, death, the difference between life and death. They describe the difference between knowing the eternal bliss of heaven and nearness to God, void of any curse from the fall, in comparison to eternal damnation and suffering under the wrath of God in hell. So it is very important. We cannot miss it. And then he reminds them again who is saying this. It's not that he thinks maybe they forgot who wrote this letter, but he says it, it's, it's him. It's, Look, I, Paul, say to you, Paul the Apostle. Presumably he does this because of the weight of the things that he's going to say now. And so he's appealing to his apostolic authority that he's been trusted by God to build up the church. So we need to pay attention to, especially to what comes after this. And so we'll take verses 2 and 3 together. Again it says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Or in other words, Christ will profit you nothing. Verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Literally, that he is in debt 
to keep the whole law of God perfectly. Now, a reader who is totally unaware of you know, what's happened before this in the letter to Galatians, to the Galatians, they might say, well, you know, this isn't a big problem at all. It seems pretty simple. Paul says circumcision doesn't avail you anything. Circumcision is bad. Then just don't get circumcised. If you want to please God, don't get circumcised. Seems like it's easy. Uh, just avoid the issue altogether. But I want us to see that that superficial reading of this that doesn't understand the backstory, it does something that is just as dangerous as to what circumcision represents. It makes non-circumcision into a work that we can use to earn favor from God. And this is ultimately what we're talking about here, church. We're talking about faith and works. We're talking about grace and law, just like we were a couple of weeks ago. The, uh, the Apostle Paul is framing it in the language of circumcision and uncircumcision because of the Judaizers and their false teaching. But make no mistake, this whole section is a passionate plea to obtain salvation by faith alone and to flee from anything that reeks of self-righteousness. And self-righteousness is a rampant problem. In, in the church. It means that this portion of scripture, even though he's talking about an element of the old covenant and circumcision, which we'll talk a little bit about more later, which doesn't have much to do with us, it means that it's still very important for us to understand the principles that are being set forth here. It is faith or works as a means of being justified before God. It means that, or justification I should say, means that we have been declared righteous. When God says that we have been justified, he means to say that we have been declared righteous. That's what justified means. It means that he doesn't count our sin against us. It, but it's more than just simply being viewed as if we've never sinned. You're, you're not simply neutral. God does more than just simply view as, view as one who's never sinned, like, like Adam in the garden before he fell. It's more than that. He views you with an actual righteousness. He views you with all of Christ's righteousness when you are justified. You have all of his righteousness, or in other words, all of his goodness, all of his faithfulness, all of Christ's perfectness, all of it is accredited to you. It's in your bank. You possess it. He's given it to you. It is wonderful news to be justified before God because of Christ and his righteousness. So this passage applies very much to us. And the principles being set forth here tell us that in a way, there are only two religions. Now I'm well aware that there are in fact hundreds, if not thousands of religions that have existed throughout the course of history. And even today, you have Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, and many, many, many more. You have just spiritualism, which has kind of morphed into this religion of its own. I've even read recently that witchcraft, or what I guess we might call Wiccanism, is like drastically on the rise in the United States. And then, of course, there are the perversions of true Christianity, which are legion. Uh, there's Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, the Roman, Roman Catholicism, Iglesia Ni Cristo, and go on and on and on about uh, these different religions and perversions of Christianity. And so what do I mean by saying that there are only two religions? There are obviously more than two religions. Well, what I mean is that you can boil them all down to one of two principles. It is either salvation by faith alone, with nothing that we contribute to the equation, or salvation by somehow working for it. You must be good enough. 
You must, be, you must do enough good things. You must not do enough bad things. Even a religion that says Jesus did 99.99% of the work and all you have to do is 0.01% is a religion of works and is deadly. There's no life in it. There's no freedom in it. So in a way, we can all boil it down to true biblical orthodox Christianity. That is the only religion which proclaims that we are saved by faith alone, apart from no works of our own, and then everything else. Everything else that is made up of works and somehow cooperating with grace. Just two religions. Further, it is popular in our culture to say that you know, all roads lead to God and that we're being narrow if we somehow disagree with that, if we are to claim Christianity is the only way. That Jesus, when he was speaking, in, it was recorded in John 14, 6, where he says that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me, that when he was saying that, he was just merely speaking to those people there. And there is, you know, other ways to God as well. Well, I'm, I'm not afraid to say it, but those people are right. We are being narrow when we say that Jesus is the only way, that Christianity is the only true religion. And that's not a bad thing. It's simply biblical. There is the narrow road that leads to life. Jesus taught about this himself. That narrow road is Christianity. It is Christ's righteousness imputed to us and accredited to us that has us on the road. And there is a wide road that leads to death and destruction, and many are on it, we would read in God's Word. And that road is every other religion, because every other religion is works-based, or it's works coupled with grace-based. And so, you know, I'll, I'll tell you that, again, there are only two religions. And every road as well, well, I guess both of those roads, they do lead to God. Every, every road leads to God, but only one of them will end with him welcoming you with a warm embrace. You'll, you'll experience you know, your salvation, your glorification at the end of that narrow road. But every other religion, every other system that is on that wide road that leads to destruction, you too will meet God there, but you will not be glad that you did. At that point, you'll have to pay for all of your sin yourself. And it's not that our sin wasn't paid for on the narrow road. It's that Christ took the payment for our sin on that road. We were justified because Jesus has accredited to us His goodness, His righteousness. He took the, pen, the punishment we deserve. But on that wide road, every other religion that is ultimately a false religion, you'll have to pay for those sins yourself. God is still just. And, and you will you know, not want to be there. So the, the point that Paul is telling us here is that we're to stand firm in Christ. The narrow road is sweet. Christ paid for all of our sins. He gave us his righteousness. So stand firm in him. Do not submit to a yoke of slavery. It is faith or works, grace or law, uncircumcision or circumcision. That is what he's talking about here. And the point of verses 2 and 3 is not that circumcision in itself is wrong. It's a neutral choice for us now that the new covenant has begun in Christ. It's not that circumcision is wrong, but that any action that we do that we think makes God 
bless us or forces him to bless us is wrong. Circumcision happened to be the foremost requirement for the Judaizers who were teaching the Galatians to work their way into God's favor. They were saying that Jesus' actions were necessary, but also that it wasn't enough, that you had to also get circumcised. Being circumcised was something that would happen to the males within the old covenant of Judaism. But if you're going to tack on part of the law, this is what Paul's saying here, then really what you're doing, and what he's saying in verse 2 and 3, is that you must put yourself totally under the law. We're not simply free to pick and choose certain parts of God's law for salvation. It's not that the law of God is bad or wrong, but simply it has no place in bringing about or in keeping us justified. It does three things. It exposes our sin. It restrains evil in the world, and it shows us what is pleasing to God. It gives us a guide by how we might live, the law of God that is. But we cannot make the error of thinking that keeping it makes us or keeps us saved. And if we try to hold on to part of it, no matter how small it is, it cancels out the rest of the, the grace that God has given to us. It cancels out the freedom that we have in Christ, and it puts us in bondage. Or better, it shows that they never had freedom, but were in fact always in bondage. Remember Galatians 2, 3 through 5 a couple months ago. There Paul writes, he says, But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers, it's an interesting term, isn't it? False brothers. More on that in a little bit. Um, but because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so they might bring us into slavery. To them, we do not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. That's what Paul means in 5.1 when he says, stand fast and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. That is, do not let the Judaizers or anyone trick you into thinking that circumcision or any other outward act of obedience can be offered to God as a benefit to him, which, which he must then reward with some payment. Okay, we can't force God to keep us or anything like that. It's, it's all by grace. It's all, our salvation is through grace alone, by faith alone. Let's look more closely at verse 2. He says that if you accept circumcision... Christ will be of no advantage to you. You see, the problem with the Judaizers here that he's writing about is that they wanted to reap what Christ had sowed for them, but only by contributing to their status through their own moral behavior, through their own obedience, in other words. And Paul says that if you, if you try to contribute to your righteousness, to your righteous standing, then what that means is that there is some sort of pride that exists in you that makes you think you deserve salvation. And if that's the case... Christ's grace will profit you nothing. He'll be of no advantage to you. Why? Because all of the spiritual and physical blessings that Christ gives are blessings paid by his own work leading up to and then at Calvary. When the Son of God lived a perfectly holy life and died for our sins, the righteousness which he secured for us was so great that the divid and the dividends were so infinite, they were so endlessly available to all who, who what? All who believe. And so that means that believing in Christ comes with an advantage. We have everything that Christ earned for us. And this is, this is very important to note, especially when we're thinking of talking, like maybe doing evangelism. I, when you talk to people that you're, that you're meeting, you're wanting to see if they know Christ. There's many ways you can go about it. 
Um, but there's, there's a method that I like to use that, that kind of I try to expose this common error that Paul is dealing with here in Galatians. And so you might ask someone if, you know, if they're a Christian. And oftentimes, you know, because of the country we live in, a lot of people will say, yes, I'm a Christian. And so we can't stop there. You ask more and you say, well, you know, if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? And you no, know, most likely, unless they're very, you know, new to Christianity, they'll say, yes, you know, yes, I'm going to heaven. But there's another question you can ask, and that is, well, why would you go to heaven? And at that point, that's when this Galatian error comes out. And you'll hear people say things like, oh, well, I'm a good person. You know, I, I go to church. I read my Bible. I try to do good. And that's the same heresy that Paul's writing about here in Galatians. And maybe those people are truly saved when they say that and they're just uninformed. They don't know how to communicate the truths of the Bible. But that's the same heresy here. We don't go to heaven because we keep the law. We don't go to heaven because we're good in ourselves. The only right answer to that question, the only reason why God should let us into his heaven is because Christ's goodness has been given to us. It's because Jesus has died for me. That is why. That is why I, I lay claim to this reward that I know I don't deserve. It's because Christ has loved me and gave himself for me and I trust him. That is the means by which we enter into heaven. So believing in Christ brings an advantage. You know, would you rather stand before God and depend upon your own good works or Christ's? Are you like the rich young ruler who thinks he has kept the law of God from his youth up? Are you like the Pharisee who boasted in his obedience and all his good deeds in a public prayer? Maybe it's, maybe it's not even that obvious, and this is where it gets so hard to identify this. This is where it becomes so easy for us to fall into a works righteousness mentality. How many of us have ever labored under the misunderstanding that we had to please God by our own obedience that we might be saved? How many of us have labored under the misunderstanding that if we sin, we can somehow lose our salvation? How many of us have ever thought to ourselves that we are better than others because we are more obedient than them? All of these false opinions are based on this Galatian heresy. We try and we, and we try to be holy because we know that God is holy and, and that to obey Christ is to love Him. And it's good to be holy. And of course, it's good to obey Christ. There is even no justification. There is no being declared righteous apart from sanctification, apart from this process of God making you more, more holy. But then, we're in all this trying to be holy and to be, and to be obedient to Christ, we're met with the reality that we fall short of God's grace. We, we're met with the reality that we fall short of God's glory. And how do we respond? Do we look to Christ at that point and remember the gospel and don't get confused about contributing our works for our salvation? Or do we try to be more holy? Do we dig in? You know, our culture, our society instructs us that a little bit of digging in, a little bit of elbow grease can get the job done. The truth is counterintuitive though. Bush and Dew in their commentary write, merely trying harder doesn't make you holier, although it does make you holier than thou because it, it doesn't promote faith and dependence upon Jesus. Trying harder doesn't cause you to love God more. It replaces Jesus with your efforts as the object of your faith. You think that you have to be better so that God will accept you. And I'm not saying now, don't try hard to be holy. Try, try hard. 
You, know, you must, by grace and faith, put the sins that you have to death. Holiness isn't an option for the Christian, but we cannot allow ourselves to fall into the trap of thinking that our works make us acceptable to God. We can't stand before God and depend on our own good works for our salvation. Or would it be right to say that the person who depends on Christ and Christ alone has the advantage here? I think so. Verse 2 says, though, that Christ's advantage is not yours if you try to add to it with your own obedience. It has no advantage to you if you try to keep it by being good. Why? Well, because that dishonors Christ. It proclaims that his life and his death were not enough. It nullifies grace, as we read in Galatians 2, 11, or 21. It removes the offense of the cross, as we will read in Galatians 5, 11. But that is not the Christian way. We boast in Christ and the cross and, and in grace. And when we see that we have nothing to offer as righteousness, it is then that we realize that Christ's work for us was totally sufficient to win us the free grace and righteousness and life for all who trust in him. He never turns away, away any who come to him in faith because it is for freedom's sake that he has set us free. Verse 3 says the same thing as 2, but just a bit differently. Uh, Galatians 5.3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. He now uses courtroom language. I testify. He's, he's going on record to make this point here. And he says that he testifies again. I don't think he's referring to verse 2 at this point. I'm reminded of a point he made back in chapter 3 of my Bible. It's the page before. Verse 10 says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and to do them. So, circumcision in this case that he's going into in Galatians 5, is merely just an aspect of this law. It's a specific way of mentioning a work of the law. So notice the point. If a person accepts circumcision, or in other words, looks to be approved by his obedience, then at that point he is responsible for keeping all of the law. There's not any of it that is out of bounds. If he's going to look to contributing to his righteousness through doing good works, then you better be perfect. You better not fall down or miss a step in the rest of the law as well, too. If you're going to look to be approved by your obedience, you have to keep the whole law. We are obligated to do so if we even attempt to try and add justification with just one act. It is a hopeless situation. We can't do it. Even if we tried, we cannot do it. James, he writes about this as well, too. It's a couple chapters over. If you get to 1 Peter, it's too far. But James in chapter 2, in verse 10, he says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So it's the same sort of thing that Paul's saying here in the letter to the Galatians. But it's more forceful in Paul's letter because what he's talking about here is our salvation. He's saying that if you fail to, if you're wanting to be justified by even just keeping one law, that means you're, you're putting yourself under all of them. And if you fail, what James says, if you fail in keeping one, then you fail in the rest of them. 
And so it is this yoke of slavery that we put on ourselves that these false teachers in the region of Galatia were teaching. Paul's, um, so Paul you know, needs for his readers to avoid that because God's standard is perfection. He's not accepting less than perfect. So it's an impossible standard for us. And there's only one man who can meet that standard. And it's the God-man, Christ Jesus. He brings an advantage. Make no mistake, church. We are saved by works. It's the works of Christ. His perfect works applied to us, not our own works. And this is where the argument really takes up a notch. If, if the Galatians submit to a yoke of slavery and accept, accept circumcision, there are what verse 4 says, severed from Christ. But if they attempt to be justified by the law of God, that they've then fallen away from grace. He's not saying that the Galatians have done this, but he's, he's threatening them with this reality that this is what will happen if they continue to go down the path that they're on. Now, what do we do with a warning like this? Do we simply dismiss it because we know that once a person is truly saved, they can't lose their salvation? You know, we didn't do anything to earn or to bring upon our salvation. It's a gift that Christ earned and God in His sovereignty applied it to us by softening our, our hearts and giving us faith. So do we just think that this means really nothing to us then? Is that what we do with the warning passages that are in Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10? Do we just sort of dismiss them and think they're not important because we know that if you're truly saved, you can't lose your salvation? I don't, I don't think so. I think that we would be worse off for doing that. These warnings are directed to the entire church. And God uses the severity of the warnings to remind true believers of the need to keep trusting in Him all the way till the very end. You see, we need to listen to these warnings because they are the means that God uses to correct His saints and He preserves us through them. There are some that do teach we can lose our salvation, of course, and they, they would appeal to this verse. They say, oh look, here it is, Paul's saying you could fall away from grace. They'd appeal to Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10 as, as proof that you can lose your salvation. But that's not possible. A person who is actually in Christ can never go outside of Christ. Once God places you in Christ, you can't be displaced from Christ. Now, Jesus says in John 10, verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So he's saying we're in his hand and we're in the Father's hand as well too. And further, we're filled with the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And we can't make ourselves unsaved either. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul writes to the saints that are in Rome. He writes that in Romans 8. He also writes that the work which Christ begins in us, he will complete it. In other words, if Jesus begins a work of salvation in you, because he's the one who must, you don't begin the work of salvation in you. Jesus begins it. He will take it to completion. He finishes it every single time. No exceptions. <clears throat> So if you take, um, so, so again, so even though we can't lose our salvation, these warning passages are important for us. You know, we can fall into sin and God uses these warning passages here to correct us and to preserve us in Christ, to remind us again of the grace that we so desperately need. But if you take upon yourself the yoke of the law 
even innocently and not intending to do so, and you aim to use it to achieve your own righteousness before God, you've submitted to a yoke of slavery and you're not standing in the freedom for which Christ has freed you. That is a, a dangerous place to be. Or these, to use the words of this letter, you know, if that's what you're doing, you're, you're nullifying the grace that Christ has given to you. You're no longer taking advantage of grace. And so what this verse teaches then is that the experience of freedom, including the freedom of eternal life, can only be enjoyed as we depend upon the grace that Christ gives us. Slavery is what happens when you fall from that power of grace. And the encouragement to Christians then is Christians then is if you find yourself taking upon yourself a yoke of the law, trusting in your own goodness, then simply repent and rest again in the grace that God has given to you. And we, and we must also admit, too, that this warning does have actual teeth for those who are a part of the church but aren't actually in Christ as well. It has actual teeth for those who might be called false brothers, what Paul wrote about er earlier in Galatians 5, um, or Galatians 2, 3 through 5. People who are only a part of the church in an outward sense, but not an inward sense. You know, there are people who fall away from grace. It's not saving grace that they fall away from because one cannot do so. But the church affords a graciousness to people when you become part of a church. And, and a person who seeks to begin their salvation by faith in Christ, but then complete it or perfect it by their own works, effectively severs themselves from Christ's body. We understand the analogy there, right? If Christ has a body and we're the limbs, we're the body parts, if you cut a limb off of a body, it's dead. It can't live. It can't survive. And so apostasy is a real danger. Not that a true believer will apostatize, but there are people who, for the most part, seem to be saved. They partake in all the same outward graces that the rest of the church does. They get baptized. They take the Lord's Supper. Perhaps they even enter into church membership. But they receive none of the inward graces that accompany those things through faith. And then at some point, there is a change. They fall away. They no longer seem to be saved. And it even, it shocks us. And it, it greatly saddens us. And there are a number of reasons as to why one might fall away. But what we're considering this morning is a slavery that yokes us to accepting the law for salvation. It's deadly. And we must never stop depending upon grace. The key to freedom is to depend upon grace. But what is grace then? Grace is the powerful work of God which he exerts freely for your, for your sin in your life. You may have heard of this acronym before. It's you know, G-R-A-C-E and stands for God's riches at Christ's expense. I, I love that. It's excellent. It's God's blessing because of Christ. He paid for it. It's grace. We also refer to it as unmerited favor. It is blessing that we don't deserve. But there is more that we can say about grace. For example, 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God which was within me. So grace then, in that case, is God's exertion in our lives to help us. Or in another example, Romans 5.21, as sin reigned in death, grace also will reign through righteousness to eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
In that context, grace then is like a powerful king who exerts his reign in the life of Christians. It is absolutely necessary. So when Galatians 5.4 implies that the key to freedom is depending upon grace, it means that the key to God's rescuing and care effort in our lives is here now. It is this grace that he provides. The key to freedom is grace. It is faith. We are, work, we are free when God freely comes to help us and we joyfully trust his help instead of turning to the yoke of the law. And then he explains in verse 5 how it is that we actually stand in this grace and how far reaching this grace is in our Christian experience. It is through the Spirit and not by our own efforts. It is the Spirit given to us in regeneration in the experience of our new birth and then it is by faith. Again, it's it's not by your own efforts. Saving faith is a faith that looks to Christ. It, and it itself is a gift from God. It's not a work that we do. It's not something that we contribute to an equation to make us saved. Right? Remember Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. And then verse 10, For we are created in Christ Jesus, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which he created or which he prepared beforehand. So it's all by God and for God and through God that we have faith through grace. It's not something we contribute. It's the fruit of God's saving work in us. It's attached to the Spirit of God who dwells in us. It is through the Spirit by faith that we stay in grace presently. But even more, we also look to the future because of this. Even though there is a sense and is a true reality in which we are already justified by faith in Christ and clothed his righteousness, there is still a final judgment that lies before us in which a final verdict will be spoken and will be made fully in what Jonathan Edward calls ethically righteous. You know, it's not that you're more justified then. You are, the moment when you are saved, you are as much at that very moment as justified as you are at the moment upon which you enter into glory. That doesn't change because it's based on Christ and his merits. But nevertheless, we live in this life and we have what Galatians 5 says, we wait for the hope of righteousness, even though it's a present reality. He's speaking again about this final verdict that will come when we stand before the Lord in faith. But you know what? The Judaizers also are awaiting for that final hope. So the question is, is how, how do we wait for that hope? Do we wait as free men or as slaves? And these two phrases that we kind of looked at a little bit already, they sum up how free people wait in the last day. First, it's, it's through the Spirit. Our lives began, our spiritual lives begin by a work of the Spirit. Remember in the beginning of this book, we talked about Paul's conversion experience. He's on the road to Damascus. He's on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians, to arrest them, to kill them. And the Spirit intervenes, and he can't refuse him. And he makes him a, an apostle. He makes him a minister for Christ's cause. Okay? It, Paul's spiritual life in God began because of the Spirit's intervention. The same is true for us. And then our lives go on by the work of the Spirit, as Paul taught in Galatians 2, 21. Right there he says that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So we are free because God has sent the Spirit of His Son to come and make us free. He doesn't stand off and make demands. 
He offers His fellowship. He comes to dwell inside of us and help us. And He even makes the life of obedience a life of joy. You know, it's not God's commands for those that are in Christ aren't burdensome. It doesn't mean that they're easy, but they're not burdensome to us. We, we want to do what God wants us to do because we love Him and because we know He loves us and he, they're good for us. And then also again, the second phrase that shows how free people wait for the hope of righteousness is by faith. You know, through the Spirit, by faith, we wait for the hope of righteousness. Faith is the mark of grace. It's not the mark of legalism. It's not the mark of self-righteousness. Think about it. Faith is trusting in another. If you're trusting in your own righteousness, you're trusting in yourself. That's not, faith isn't a part of legalism. It's only a part of grace. But what actually is faith? You know, we talk about faith all the time, but what is it really? Well, Luke, I, I mean the author of the letter to Hebrews, which I think is probably Luke, says that um, the assurance of, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You see, if we, if we look at a person who is trusting in Christ, they don't look any different outwardly than another person. For all Christians in here, let's say that we're all Christians in here, and we all go to... McDonald's and there's a the McDonald's is packed. We would look just from the outwardly eyes, from the experience, just like everybody else in there. You can't tell that these people are saved and that these other people are not. But if we looked closer, if we looked to faith, we can see then that that is how we know if a person is saved. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. We can't see the Spirit of God living inside a person, but we can see the evidence of the Spirit of God living inside a person. We can see their faith, how it displays itself. What do they, do they believe in the biblical Christ? Do they trust the biblical Christ? Do their lives and their actions reflect that? Not simply believing in Jesus, but believing Christ, who he is and what he has done. That is how we might see faith. And, and note well in Galatians 5 that faith is not merely a past decision. It's an ongoing way of hoping for righteousness. The freedom that Christ has given us has two sides. One side is the sovereign, gracious work of God in us and for us day by day. And the other side is our faith, a life of joyful, responsive reliance on what God has done for us. Not, that, not what we can do for God, but a life that is distinctively different from the world because it has been freed to love. It's in response to what God has done. And then note what verse 6 says. He starts out, For in Christ, which is one Paul's favorite way of basically saying to be saved. In Christ means to be saved. For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. You see, it's, it's neutral now. It's neutral in the era of the new covenant. The Galatians in Christ shouldn't boast in their circumcision, nor should they boast in their uncircumcision. We likewise shouldn't boast in our obedience, nor should we boast in our freedom, in our liberty. But do you know what does count for something for the saints in Galatia? And what does count for something for us? It is faith working through love. Christians are not to be marked by the works of the flesh, but through faith working in love. That should mark us. We, we need to cling to Christ in faith. We need to love Christ by faith. That is what matters for us. It is living in that way. 
In the coming sections, we'll see in greater detail some of the specific conduct that should mark justified sinners. You know, we call it the fruit of the Spirit. It's that really famous passage in Galatians. And then it's contrasted with the works of the flesh. But we should be living a life of faith and love. That is what he's, he's making the point. That counts for something. And we would be remiss if we did not pose the following question here at this time. Do we use our justification by faith alone as a license to sin, to engage in the very things which Christ paid the penalty? You know, we're not justified by our good works. We don't attribute to our salvation. We can't lose our salvation. So then one might be inclined to think, well, it doesn't really matter how I live. I might as well just do whatever I want to do. I might as well just, you know, sin because I'm trusting in Christ and Christ alone. See, it's possible to get doctrine in your head but not have it in your heart and be totally lost. And so the answer to that is, is no, absolutely not. We cannot use the grace that God gives us as a license to sin. We should be, if we're doing that, we should be really paying attention to these warnings that he offers here in Galatians 5 and in Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10. We're not to use our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. To do so would put us back under a yoke of slavery. And we need to understand what love is here because love isn't the thing that the world thinks of. It's not some amorphous blob of warm affection, but rather we should let the word define it for us. So in that case, love is obedience to Christ, right? Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. It is a wholehearted devotion and commitment to God. Think of that is what love is. Think of what the greatest commandment is. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind. It's the first and great, greatest commandment. So love is a whole-hearted devotion and commitment to God. Love is also to seek the good of others then. We want our own good, don't we? We don't wish evil upon ourselves. And that is the second commandment after the first great commandment, that we should love our neighbors as ourselves. And only by seeking Christ in faith and the power of the Spirit can we live in the manner that Paul describes here. Uh, we can either try unsuccessfully, I might add, to render perfect obedience to God's law and secure for ourselves an only condemnation and death. Or... We can look to Christ by faith in the power of the Spirit and receive our salvation as a free gift. And in that same power, walk in obedience to God and love both for God and for our fellow man. Which one will you choose, church? That is the question before us. And, and let me make it easy for you. Choose Christ. You have every advantage in Him. Choose faith over works. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So stand firm in Him. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father in Heaven, we know that the grace that You offer to us is not something that we deserve, Lord. We weren't good enough to deserve it. If we were, then, I mean, then it wouldn't even be grace. But we also realize how much it costs You, God, that You, Christ the Son, You were born into this world that you might suffer and live as a man, that you might be perfectly obedient whereas we should have been, and then you might take the wrath that we deserve on the, Christ, on, the, on the cross. So we thank you, Christ Jesus, for loving us in that way. And we pray that you would help us 
that you would give to us grace so that we would not submit ourselves to a yoke of slavery, that we would not look to our good works as a means for you to bless us, that we would not try hard to be good so that we would be in your favor, but instead that we would simply believe the truth of being in your favor because Christ has loved us and died for us and applied salvation to us. Help us then still, Lord, to increase in good works for your glory's sake. Help us to live in love through faith that Christ would be magnified all around us. We cannot do it in our own strength, God. We depend upon you. So please help us as only you can. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.